This is The Blunt Doctor Show. On a Thursday morning, less than 24 hours after recording my last episode because so many things have happened and my brain is on fire, I'm in the midst of a full-blown manic episode, let it never be said that I have not brought the best and worst of myself to you and just honestly been open about what kind of person I am. But this morning, my brain is firing and so many things I want to talk about. And so I'm just going to do it. And sure, some people may say, don't post another episode immediately because then you water down the actual number of listens to each episode of your podcast because people won't want to listen to two episodes. And to those people, I say... However, will I randomly secure a deal with SiriusXM by proving that I can record multiple hours a day unless I put out too many podcast episodes, and therefore, I am here. I don't know why I've publicly started lobbying SiriusXM to pick up this show, because ultimately, I could never actually work on a schedule, probably, and I could never do, like, what people or corporate executives told me to do, so I don't know why I'm asking anyone to... (laughs) But it's still fun to think about. How fun would it be to get paid to do this thing that I do in my garage? That was the dream of Apple. And it's also the dream of this podcast. In any case, let's just go ahead and dive in. There are a lot of topics here. And it's going to be, I think I'm going to call this episode probably like the off-topic show. Because I'm going to be just veering from, or maybe the tangent show, I don't know, it's, because I can't call it Rant City 3, because that's just, that's way too easy, Rant City 3 has to come at a time in the future when there is truly something to rant about, whatever that may be, but this just needs to be like, again, the off-topic show, because really what I want to start, and although truth be told, let's be honest, I do start the show a lot with politics or social issues or just issues in general, but this time I'm going to turn extremely political for a moment and not just in terms of socialism and, and all of those things and right and wrong, but just true political voting because something happened last night that, well, let's just, let's just talk about it. There is a crazy winter storm throughout the Midwest of this country. It is unprecedented. It is obviously caused by global warming and its long-term effects on the planet. And it is somehow shifting, um, you know, all of our weather, essentially. It's very interesting. It seemed like we weren't going to have a winter this year, but it actually is just, uh, you know, like a month later. So it seems like uh, we're shifting the months of our planet and how they actually uh, function and play out in our world. And that's wonderful. But in any case, um, what is happening right now in Texas specifically is that their power grid, obviously, has been completely destroyed. And the reason Turns out that it is because, of course, Texas has its own decentralized, deregulated power grid that they control that doesn't really connect to the federal power grid. And, of course, they didn't properly maintain it because Republicans didn't feel like it was a big deal to maintain it. And now the entire state is, well, it's a big icicle. And, you know, pipes are frozen and people don't have power. They don't have water. They don't have electricity. And so what does Senator Ted Cruz do? He flies to Cancun. Just going to let that one sink in for a minute. A sitting senator in the middle of a pandemic and a weather emergency left his state. To go to Cancun. That is a verified fucking thing that happened. 
how is that how 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 is that a thing yes a senator specifically united states senator does not make the laws in his state and he does not necessarily influence all of the you know things that go on locally he you know has you know a large purview of you know national things to deal with and voting i i understand all of that it is nonetheless his state, the state that he has been elected to represent. And it is his job in this scenario as a United States senator to do whatever he can to secure any federal funds or federal aid and whatever he can to help his state. That is literally his job. Do anything you can to help the state of Texas in this time. Again, this is not just a winter emergency, but also a pandemic. So... You have people who are sick and now don't have water and can't receive proper medical treatment. And he leaves the fucking country. Now, I know that Texas has been Republican forever. And I know that the idea of Texas going blue is something that is impossible in the minds of most people. And I know that none of us are really happy with the Democratic Party because, yet again, they've been elected. We voted for them. They promised us checks to help us get through the pandemic. They haven't delivered. I, I know all of this. But I also know two other things. Number one, Arizona flipped blue for the first time in forever, and Georgia did the same. And if those two states can go blue... So could Texas. You might say it's more difficult. There's so many more people. It's so difficult. Yeah, but also there's so many people, which means there's just so many minds to change. And when you register voters, well, you know, you really can. Every time you register a voter, you really have the opportunity to change the outcome of an election. And the simple fact of the matter is that, you know, still most people in this country don't vote. So if you can increase enthusiasm among the people who are voting for what you believe in, then suddenly you change the game. And the simple fact of the matter is, is that taking Ted Cruz out and removing him from the U.S. Senate and, you know, having someone just just defeating him in the next election and um, then essentially flipping Texas blue, those two things need to be of the highest priority. We need to organize whatever campaigns that we can for registering the vote in Texas, much in the same way that it was done in Georgia. Truthfully, everything, whatever methods they did to drive enthusiasm and voter turnout and voter registration in Georgia, those same methods need to now be deployed in Texas because this simply can't be allowed to continue. There is, There are so many people in Texas who want the state to change, who want the state to be more progressive, but the state keeps reducing uh, polling places and they reduce the number of hours you can vote and they make it more and more difficult for poor and disenfranchised communities to vote and they don't want them to vote. And so we need to do every single thing that we can to make sure that they do. Whatever initiatives can be undertaken to increase early voting, to increase the number of days that uh, polls are open, to increase the number of polls in general, whatever initiatives can be taken to increase voter turnout in Texas is a good thing for progressive politics. And it's a good thing for the idea of continued blue waves in the future. I know that Ted Cruz is still going to be in the Senate for, you know, he's, his term is till 2024, I believe. I understand that. But the simple fact of the matter is that this guy is one of the worst people in the country. He, you know, he and Mitch McConnell together have, you know, helped deliver the Republican Party to Donald Trump and turned everything into 
I've got no love for Republicans before Trump, but I mean, they weren't this psychotic. And now it's just become this party of QAnon bullshit insanity. It's absolute garbage. Everyone, you know, we all know how we all feel about the GOP at this point, but the people who are responsible for that occurring, two of them, Mitch McConnell and Ted Cruz, they need to be removed from the Senate. McConnell just won again, which is absurd, but, you know, I don't know what to do about Kentucky, but Texas has a very diverse demographic. There are a lot of people in Texas. And so removing Ted Cruz, taking him out of his Senate seat, moving him, kicking his ass to the curb and saying, you're done here. That guy, he needs to be gone. He needs to be done with. He needs to be out of the Senate. He needs to be out of politics. And that needs to be job number one in Texas. Whatever voter registration methods, and maybe I'll, I don't know, I'll reach out to friends in Texas and I'll start yelling at them. I don't know what else needs to be done, but we've got to change We've simply got to change this one state, because if you look at how many people are in Texas, how many electoral votes there are, how important it would be if a state that has that many, uh, that diverse a landscape could suddenly add two more blue senators, it's a game changer. It just really is. And it's one of the most likely states to flip. I mean, look at the demographics of somewhere like Florida, right, where we know that many people retire. It's always going to be difficult to flip Florida. But you look at the demographics of Texas and you see that if people were able to vote, if there were actually polling places in poor neighborhoods, if they weren't if, – if every single thing wasn't done to destroy their ability to vote, then things might be different. And I'm not saying that it's a guarantee that everything would be different next time, but I can definitely guarantee you that if every single poor neighborhood has to take eight hours to vote and every single historically white neighborhood only has to take a few minutes, I can guarantee you where the most people are going to vote. We know how those things go and we know how this has been done. And we know, you know, you, I mean, in a lot of cases, it has to start on a local level in Texas because the truth of the matter is that election gerrymandering and fucked up districts and number of polling places and all of those things, those all occur at the local level. None of that stuff has anything to do with federal election commission or anything like that. So the simple fact of the matter is we need to do whatever we can to encourage every single person who has a good background and is, you know, smart and focused, young, progressive, they should be running for local office in Texas. We need to change the tides in the local elections there, have as many progressive candidates as possible, because the more grassroots progressive campaigns that we successfully run in Texas, the more likely you are to, you know, undo all of this bullshit gerrymandering. You're able to fix polling places and you're able to kick Ted Cruz's ass out of office. And it's going to be a multi-year effort, but the good news is you have multi-years to do it. But it's got to be something that is undertaken because this state is just bad. And it's just, it's the people are not bad, but the, the, the control of the state has been given to, you know, just yet again, the people who don't deserve it. And they edit their history books and tell this conservative bullshit whitewash version of history. Everything going on in Texas is terrible. And I don't care about what people from Houston think, you know, how much they love their city or I don't care. They don't have income tax or Texas used to be a country. This isn't about any of that shit. I'm not talking about Texas, the people or Texas, the state is a geographical place, whatever. Who cares about any of that? Love your state, have pride in your state. That's perfectly fine. I don't care about that at all. But 
in this scenario, we're talking about one of the largest states in the country that has literally been handed over to one of the craziest groups of people ever. And the simple fact of the matter is it's unacceptable. And this has to be the next target. Flipping Texas has to be the next thing that everyone who believes in a progressive agenda should focus on. And I know that it seems weird to say that if you're from another state, you should be focused on Texas. Obviously, I'm in Arizona, for example. I should be focused on keeping Arizona trending progressively. You know, sure, that's a good idea, and we all should be. But when you consider the national perspective of getting a Green New Deal and making marijuana nationally legal and stopping, you know, penalizing black people for smoking marijuana while white people smoking in California, no problem. When you talk about getting rid of ICE, when you talk about taking away all of this funding from the DEA, when you talk about defunding police and all of these things that we want to accomplish, equality at all levels for all people, all of these things start truly at the national level. And the simple fact of the matter is the biggest way, the hugest way, and the easiest way that we can affect change in that direction is being active in Texas politics, just truthfully. Because if Texas were to flip, the number of basically locked in electoral votes would guarantee Democrats the elections forever. Texas, New York, and California would basically verify that there would be no opportunity for Republicans to win any presidential election at all in any possibility, which then would, of course, lead Republicans to being okay with abolishing the Electoral College, which, again, is good because, yet again, Republicans wouldn't win in that scenario. So these things are all good. But the future, as much as I bash and clash with people from Texas over some of their beliefs about their state and how great it is compared to the rest of the country. Again, it's fine to be prideful about your state, but it's annoying when you sit there and talk about how you're better than everyone all the time because you're not. You're just a person. In any case, see, I'm letting it I'm letting it bleed. I'm letting the, the arguments that I have about this start to bleed in. I may or may not have family members from Texas who I had to grow up with. I may, had, may or may not have to argue with my stepbrother about this. Anyway, so the point is, truthfully, If we all turn our eyes to helping grassroots political efforts in Texas, grassroots progressive political efforts in Texas, if we all chip in a few bucks or a few minutes, if we – a few retweets, whatever it is, everything that we can do to push Texas blue is going to be really good for this country and get rid of Ted Cruz. That is one of the biggest things that could be done to save our fucking future. And by the way, once we get the job done, flip the state blue and kick Ted Cruz's ass out of there, it's going to be really easy to kick John Cornyn's ass out too. Two fucking bullshit senators from the same goddamn state. Oh, fucking hate Republicans so goddamn much. They're such bad people. If you're still a Republican right now, you're either evil or stupid. There's no fucking third option, man. I fucking, I, I can't stand these people. It's just... I hate Republicans. I just really do. I hate Republicans. I I don't know. I don't know what else to say. I don't know what else to say. I hate Republicans. I just really do. I don't associate with anyone who considers themselves conservative. I don't even associate with my conservative family because there's simply no excuse to be conservative is to say that you only care about yourself and you only care about the things that interest you and that you're not interested in helping your fellow man. And if that's how you feel, you can go fuck yourself. That's it. I really don't care who that offends. I don't really care who disagrees. That's simply how I feel about it. You can go fuck yourself if you if you're a conservative. I just don't care. It's it it 
only caring about yourself and not caring about the people around you makes you a selfish individual and someone I don't want in my orbit. I don't want you in my atmosphere. I don't want you in my universe. And again, you know, any of my family members who feel that way are, you know, again, I don't give a fuck. It means nothing to me because the people that I care about, that I know care about me, don't feel that way. The people in my circle I know don't feel that way. But there are certainly family members on the outs of my circle who do feel that way, who I no longer speak to. And that's the level that I take it to. There's no, hey, we can disagree across the aisle. I don't feel that way at all. I feel none of that towards the right wing. I really don't. Because there is no agreement when you believe that certain people don't have the right to exist. And, you know, you have to be cordial with people. You have to. And there are certain family members you just have to deal with sometimes. And you have to work to try to educate those people. Sure. You know, we all have someone in our family that we still talk to probably that has those leadings and you just have to try to work to educate them. And it's, it's a losing effort and it's hard and it's rough and it sucks. And, you know, I, I understand all that. And I don't begrudge other people who don't cut their relatives out or don't cut out toxic family members or something. You know, I don't begrudge other people have different relationships from their family than me. So I'm not trying to sit here and say other people need to do this or other people should do that. So let me be clear about that. Like everyone has their own, whatever I'm saying that in my world, I have no ability to like, I can't be Facebook friends even with people who are conservative. I can't go to family events where my conservative family members are going to sit there and rant about, you know, this, I can't even speak to my father anymore. Seriously. Like I, I don't speak to my father anymore. There's no point because he is just going to say a bunch of bullshit that I don't want to fucking hear. And that is not true. He's going to say conspiracy theory, insanity, QAnon bullshit. And I don't want to hear it. And so I just have no, I'm not a reach across the aisle. Let's work this out kind of person. To me, reaching across the aisle is working with Democrats. <laughs> That's reaching across the aisle to me. I've got nothing for Republicans. And all I want to do is kick every single Republican out of fucking office and just keep pushing and keep pushing until the Democrats are the right-wing party. Because they already are. Democrats are the right-wing party. So it is my goal to make blue right-wing and make green left-wing. And make red a thing of the past. And that's just the agenda. So anyone who has concrete ideas about changing the state of local politics politics in Texas with an emphasis on eventually changing Senate elections and presidential elections in Texas by, again, increasing the number of polling places, increasing polling hours, increasing polling days, increasing early mail-in voting, all of those things. Anyone who has concrete ideas about creating change in those areas, you need to be working on those things. And I would... I, if I come up with anything, I'm going to reach out to people too, because it's just a really good way to change the future and make it blue. And then again, make the blue green. And that is my political speech for the day on the actual political spectrum, at least, because now I want to talk about something that is still fairly political in nature, but is actually related to sports, which is 
technically what this show is about. Technically. Technically, it is just a blunt doctor show, and I can talk about whatever the fuck I want, which I believe is my catchphrase at this point. Who knows? Anyway, I know I'm late to the party on this one, but I still want to talk about what Draymond Green said. Um, and, you know, we all know Dre essentially said that the league has a double standard um, and that the players, you know, are fine for anything that they say publicly and teams can, you know, bench a guy, you know, and this is essentially in relation to Andre Drummond. And, you know, the thing is, everything Draymond Green said is correct. And we all know that. And the simple fact of the matter is that the players need to be in control of this league. And this is what I've said before. And I'll I'll hammer this drum forever. The players should be in control of these teams. We don't need – we certainly don't need anything called the owner. You know, we're past the usage of that term. We don't need team governors. We don't need managing partners. We don't just need rich people who come in and pay an expansion fee and then somehow get to control the lives of these players. We don't need any of that. What we need is player-controlled teams – so that they can be in control of their own destinies, in control of their own league. It's their league. This is a player's league. It's simply not what it used to be. And they should be in control and it should be run how they want it to be run. And again, you know, as far as people saying, well, I don't like that idea, blah, 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 the old school, whatever. You can't tell me that a player having ownership in a team doesn't make him want to stick around. And I think that we sort of forget that, you know, these guys have no stake in the team beyond, you know, success that season. You could be traded at any time unless you have a no trade clause, and very few players have those. And, you know, if the team drafts a player that suddenly is better than you, they'll be looking to move you as quickly as possible. You know, it's just how it goes. You know, the league right now is structured so that only the teams benefit. And now they're in a financial downturn. And how do they want to solve that problem? They want to add two more teams to the league, which is good for adding more players. Sure, that's good. But they don't have to split the expansion fee with the players. So it's a way for the, you know, current managing partners to split a bunch of cash and make up their losses. And they don't have to give that money to the players. They don't have to split it because somehow a franchise fee is not technically basketball related income and things like that are stupid. They're incredibly stupid. And, you know, I don't care about the bargaining power of the past or the bargaining positions of the past or what the agreements were. The players simply need to take over this league. And when the next collective bargaining agreement comes around, they really just need to start hammering because they used to have a 57% split of the basketball related income and now they gave up they gave that up in the great what the 2011 lockout or whatever it was and you know the simple fact of the matter is they never should have budged on that point the managing partners don't bring anything to the table except money well guess what money can be found anywhere there's always more people with more money and the simple fact of the matter is that if the players were in control of their own teams, they wouldn't have to split that money with rich people. They could simply split it with themselves and the people who actually work in the organization and actually do the job. There are very few of these managing partners who actually do anything in this league except things that make themselves look glamorous. For the most part, they're completely useless. And I'm not saying that every star player in this league is a really good talent evaluator or would be a really good GM, but there are certainly plenty of players in this league who would be very good as GM while teams are running. Or maybe your team wants to hire a traditional GM. Fine. Simple fact of the matter is that the players 
should be splitting all the money. The employees should be splitting all the money. Down to the arena employees who have to work their ass off on game day and don't even get to work, you know, a regular full schedule. And some of them have to be seasonal or have to work multiple jobs. They should be splitting income when the team does well. If they have to work harder in the playoffs, why shouldn't they get some of that? That money needs to go to the people in the organization who actually do the fucking work. By the way, this is what socialism actually is. Reaping the benefits of the work you actually do and not fucking handing it to someone else like capitalism as you do. That's the actual truth. And we need more of that in the NBA. Because everything that Draymond said is right. The players are punished for everything that they do. But they're the ones who drive everything. They drive everything. They drive literally everything. And yet somehow we are less concerned about protecting the players and more concerned about finding them because we don't want them to ever say anything that might upset the fans or offend the fans or whatever. Like fans say horrendous shit to players all the time. Why can't players say what they think? If you go into a player's mentions on Twitter, like all people do is trash them. They call them horrible names. They say racist things. They send death threats. Like people are fucking awful. So why can't a player just say what they think? They get fined. And yeah, they make so much money that, you know, if you get fined 10 grand and you're making 20 million, it's who fucking cares? That's not the point. It's wrong. Teams can do and say anything, but players are somehow limited. And this has always been a problem with this league is that, again, they feel like they own the players. The term owners makes them feel that way. And that's why we simply need to get rid of this. The NBA simply needs to start filtering out the managing partners and start giving over control of the franchises to players, or they all need to start forming their own leagues and just simply move away from this one. We truly don't need the old ways anymore. We don't need to participate in leagues that hurt the players. And I know that, you know, they can't just retire and form their own league. Like I always say, I understand they won't do it because of the money, blah, blah, blah. But you have plenty of power in the contract, you know, bargaining negotiation. I mean, you just, you're just going to have to sit there and say, Hey, we want more power. We want more control because we're the ones that make this go. You can't replace the NBA players. You couldn't like, this isn't the old days. Like when, you know, when players went on strike and they use like replacement players, that would never work. If LeBron isn't suddenly there, if Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum and Anthony Davis and Nikola Jokic and Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons and Devin Booker and Chris Paul aren't there, like, there's no watching anything, okay? These guys have all the control, all the marbles. The game is different. People are watching highlights every second. They know the players. They know the teams. They know the guys they want to see. And the players simply need to take control away from these people because... They just, the players are in a position where they're listening to people who, in some cases, literally have no, I mean, don't know anything about sports, but inherited a team from their parents or were hired as an executive by their parents who own the team. And they're forced to listen to what these people tell them to do. And it's just bullshit. These are grown men who are lectured about what they can and can't say about their employer. Like, it just... It's bullshit. And everything that Draymond said is right. And, you know, whether or not you love Draymond as a player, as a person, whatever, like, 
I, I, I have no problem with Draymond. I'm just saying whatever you think about Draymond, anyone who argues with anything that he said is fucking wrong. He he hit the head. He hit the nail on the head in in every way, and it's an embarrassment for you know the Cavs to just you know trot Andre Drummond out there and say yeah we don't want him anymore we're gonna trade him whatever that shit is embarrassing for him and sure maybe he felt unwanted and didn't want to play or whatever you know there was you know or not didn't want to play but you know maybe his heart wasn't in it or whatever but like you know you did trade for a player at his position and you know basically tell him he's not part of your future so i mean did you expect him to be ultra thrilled about that and i mean i'm not saying that he shouldn't have but like we act like people aren't human these are people Andre Drummond was basically shoved to the side and told, we don't really want you anymore. And it's not like he's 35 or something. Like, he's still in his 20s. He's in his prime. And the Cavs are like, no, we just don't want you. And then expect him to just act perfectly. It's like Draymond said. Draymond literally said. I don't even need to repeat what Draymond said. We know what he said. But he's expected to be a professional, blah, blah, blah. And it's just bullshit. And the league just needs to... just The league needs to get out of... The idea that, you know, people who are bringing money to the table in terms of franchise fees somehow deserve to control the way other people act. Because, I mean, think about all this stuff like, oh, you're rich, so now you're on the board of governors. Like, how does that make sense? How is – just because you're rich, you should be able to have a vote in how the NBA runs? That makes no fucking sense at all. And we just need to get rid of these people and get rid of their money. And split the money between the players. And the more control they have, the happier they'll be. The better things will go. The money will go up. It'll all be better. We just, we got to get rid of these people. We really do. I'm very pro Draymond on that speech. And um, another, this is, I'm going to just swerve again here. Let me just put a cap on that. I agree with everything. Draymond said, anyone who disagrees with Draymond is wrong. We need to get managing partners out of the NBA and split the money amongst the players and the people who actually do the work. And anyone who disagrees with that can fuck off. And that's it. And now, another subject that I don't typically talk about here, basically at all, is baseball. But this is one that I did want to talk about. Fernando Fernando Tatis Jr. signing a 14-year $340 $340 million extension with the San Diego Padres. And as I am talking about this right now, a Carson Wentz trade has just broke. Carson Wentz traded to the Colts for, let's see, a 2021 third round pick and a conditional 22 second round pick. Conditional can mean a lot of different things, playing time, snaps, wins, whatever. But uh, Wentz to the Colts was one of those things that was predicted by a lot of people. Um, obviously, with Frank Reich, um, you know, Wentz reunites with the guy who he essentially had his best time. Um, and that, you know, I mean, I can understand why the Colts would want to buy low on Wentz. You didn't have to give up a first round pick. You, you know, just lost a couple of quarterbacks to retirement, you know, two and three years. It didn't work out with Jacoby Brissett. So, you know, I can understand the idea of buying low. You've got Wentz locked into a contract. The Eagles already had to pay a bunch of it. You're locked in for less money. You've got a coach who believes he can work with this guy. 
You've got a whole team around him. So if it does work right, you're in a good position to contend. It's not a bad decision for the Colts. For the Eagles, obviously, no one was going to pony up anything in terms of a first-round pick. Otherwise, they wouldn't have taken this. I mean, the Wentz thing was a disaster, but it was simply a disaster they had to move on from. And it's one of those things where there's no possibility of – when there's no possibility of saving the situation, you just have to move on and do the best you can. And this is what the Texans still haven't figured out with Deshaun Watson is that there's no salvaging that situation and you just need to move on and do the best that you can and get the most assets that you can as quickly as possible. And if you, if it goes, drags out a little bit, you need to build a bidding war or whatever, that's fine. But you know, the Eagles benefit from this situation now because they can turn to, you know, looking at the future, you know, is Jalen hurts a guy we want to look at again? Do we want to just move on? What are we going to do? The one situation didn't work. We fired the coach. We got a super bowl out of it, you know, whatever. I mean, I think the Eagles can pretty much just say, and I know that Wentz didn't have anything to do with the super bowl, but between, um, you know, Peterson and, and Wentz and Foles, you know, they got a ring, they got their only ring, whatever you move on to the next era, you figure things out. And, you know, maybe that team will be looked at fondly by, you know, Eagles fans in in the future. But right now, there's literally nothing to do but just move on. And this is probably the best return you're going to get. You know, the thing is, you can turn a second round pick into like a pair of fourth rounders and you can turn a third into a fourth rounder and another third next year or something. You know, you can flip those and increase your depth. And, you know, the simple fact of the matter is that the Eagles are going to have some dead money on the cap with Carson Wentz being moved. And so... You know, being able to acquire a couple of picks and then maybe flip those for a couple of more picks just to put more bodies on the roster is a good thing because you're going to have to fill out that roster with some cheap contracts. It's going to be a rebuild for the Eagles, but you know, what the hell? That's the situation. That's why they hired a person that none of us believe they should have hired, but whatever. Um, I will say that this is now going to be one of those scenarios where you're going to look at the Eagles next year with a bunch of dead money on their books, new quarterback situation, holes in the roster, new coach, first-time head coach. They're going to suck a lot next year. The Eagles are really going to be one of those teams. I mean, they're probably going to win no more than three, four games. So the Eagles are going to be a team next year that you're probably going to really want to look to bet against in the season totals. You're going to look to bet against them each week because it's going to be really hard for them to fill that roster out and get everything going the right way. And that's not to say it's not impossible. Lots of teams carry dead money. But, I mean, look at Tampa Bay. They had basically none. They won the Super Bowl. The Eagles are going to have a ton. You're probably going to be near the end of the NFC least, but you know, Hey, this is what it is. You sell out everything to win a Super Bowl, and you do. And ultimately I think that's the one thing about sports is that no matter how South things go. And in this scenario, they went really bad. You fire Doug Peterson, you move on from your, you know, supposedly franchise quarterback or who would have been your franchise quarterback. You're, you know, now you're kind of floundering. Like, you know, this is how it goes. Sometimes, you know, you crash and burn a little bit. You know, the Seahawks have never been the same since they won the Super Bowl. You know, Russell Wilson has gotten more expensive. They haven't been able to replace the players on the defense. You know, these things happen. And obviously, the Eagles situation is worse given that Peterson's fired and Wentz is now traded. But even though Wentz didn't win the Super Bowl, the simple fact of the matter is, is that during the time all of those people were there, the Eagles got their only Super Bowl victory. So like 10 years from now, there will probably be some fond memories for, you know, I mean, at least Nick Foles and Trent Peterson or Doug Peterson, excuse me. I don't think anyone has a negative thing to say about Nick Foles in Philadelphia, obviously, but 
um, you know, I think Wentz eventually will be forgiven. He was still the leader of that team. They were still one of the best teams in the league that season before Wentz was hurt. You know, I think eventually, you know, feelings will be forgiven. People celebrate that team, especially if things don't go well in the future for Philadelphia, which like right now, I don't really see how they will. But that's what it is. Wentz is gone. And, you know, again, a second and third round pick. It's really not a horrible return. Like, you know, I don't I don't think you are getting any more than that. So, I, you know, I think it's fine. What I was going to talk about a few minutes ago, Fernando Tatis Jr. signs a 14-year, $340 million extension with the Padres. $340 million guaranteed. That is one hell of a contract. There is a full no-trade clause, so he can stay in San Diego as long as he wants to. And as far as I know, there are no opt-outs. I've looked. I haven't seen anyone say there are no opt-outs, but I also haven't seen any reported. For a deal like this, it sort of seems like there would be no opt-outs because I don't know what the upside for San Diego is otherwise. Why pay him all this money if he can just bolt? Um, you know, essentially at this point, they took out all of his pre-arbitration years, his arbitration years, all that stuff, and they paid him through his prime to his like age through his age 35 season. And, you know, you wouldn't do that if you risked losing him after, you know, just his arbitration years, essentially, because, um, you know, at that point he has been, you know, paid way more than you would have had to have paid him, um, over the life of the contract, the average annual value is only like $24 million. So the full life of the contract, the average annual value is not bad at all. You're overpaying him from what you'd have to pay him right now. But what you may have to pay him in six years or five years or whatever, like it would have been way more. So this is a home run contract for everyone. And for Tatis, it's a home run, obviously, because he gets $340 million fucking guaranteed at age 22. You know, I, I saw some people... Uh, you know, Jeff Passan, I think it was, who tweeted, you know, tell your kids to play baseball. And other people were like, 24 million puts in between LaMarcus Aldridge and Buddy Heald. Well, LaMarcus Aldridge and Buddy Heald didn't get 14-year contracts at age 22. <laughs> and there's no way to argue this is a bad deal for Tatis. It's one of the largest guarantees ever for a player in baseball. He's, you know, only been in the game for like a year and a half. It's or it's it's amazing. Um but for the Padres, you lock up a player who has the potential to be the best player in the game. Not maybe right now, but two, three, four years from now, you he's he's got the potential to be the best player in the game, and you lock him up through his entire prime. All of his biggest earning years, all the years when he would cost you the most money, he, he's locked up. Now, again, there could be an opt-out. Maybe, maybe there's an opt-out after you're 10, and maybe that changes it somewhat. But in his age 32 season, who knows? You know, I, I don't know. But... You know, that could change the calculus again. I haven't seen anything I've looked. The point is, though, this is a phenomenal contract. And this is something that's interesting is at one point, teams seem to be turning away from committing Bing Bunny to players. They were afraid. You know, we don't know what's going to happen long term. And then, of course, what happens? Mookie Betts gets to deal with the Dodgers. And now Tatis gets this deal. And it seems like teams are turning the idea towards let's just lock up our players towards long-term deals instead of trying to, you know, play the free agency game. Now, the Rockies did that as well with Nor Nolan Arenado. Look how that worked out. He got traded, and the Rockies had to flip part of his contract, too. I can't believe that still, but, you know, shit happens, I guess. But the point is that um, what looked like the market was dead in baseball may simply now turn to, 
teams locking up younger players for very long time. You know, baseball is really the only sport that lets you do this. You can't sign a 10 year contract in, in, in basketball. Um, and you could sign a contract that long in football. You know, there, there have been 10 year deals in football, for example. Um, but the very nature of football contracts and the lack of guarantees makes those things unlikely. You know, I mean, Pat Mahomes just signed his 10 year deal. So there is that. Um, but there again, Pat Mahomes came in on, you know, a rookie slotted contract, and that's essentially an extension for him on his rookie deal. Whereas Fernando Tatis is tearing up his arbitration years. You know, baseball contracts are very different. You have your pre-arb years where you basically have no earning power. You have your arbitration years where a guy like Tatis would be setting records, but still be making significantly worse than he would actually be worth in, you know, just free agency. And then you have your actual free agency years, which most baseball players reach too late. They really need to fix baseball free agency, truthfully, because the way the free agency structure works, most guys reach free agency so late that now teams don't want to pay them, which is bullshit because they're the ones who put them in the position to not even reach free agency agency till that late. Like Tim Lincecum never got his major, you know, long-term, long-term payday because it took so long to actually reach, you know, full-term free agency that by then he already was starting to reach the downturn of his career because, you know, San Francisco got him at no money essentially for, you know, a couple of his like Cy Young seasons. And eventually they did pay him, you know, something like 40 million or something. But there was a time when it was thought that Tim Lincecum would get a $200 million contract and he never came anywhere near that because of how baseball, you know, contract systems work, how the arbitration system works. It's all garbage, you know, and it used to result in old players being overpaid. Now teams are getting smarter. They don't want to hand out those contracts to older players, but it's like some guys got squeezed out. So that's bullshit. But in this scenario, you know, it works for everyone. Tatis gets a ton of money guaranteed. He's locked into his team. He knows it's his team. They get him at an average annual value that's significantly lower than his actual value. Like you could argue that even last season, his value was worth more than 24 million. I mean, baseball financials are a little off at this moment because of how the pandemic has wrecked things. But for a while there, you know, wins were going for something like 6 million. When you look at like wins above replacement and Tatis was a two and a half win player in last year's what 60 game season. So project that over a full season. And you've got a guy that's certainly worth 25 million, 30 million. And now you've locked him in at 24. So there's really no way for this to be considered a bad contract for anyone. It's a great deal. It's smart. And I think we're definitely going to start to see teams do this. Now, you can only do it with, you know, the, the, you know, the star, star talents. This is something that Boston should have tried to do with Mookie Betts. And maybe they did. And maybe he wasn't interested. Um, but obviously the Dodgers got him, you know, eventually. Um, but this is something that if you've got a player that you truly believe is going to be one of the best in the game, then you might as well just offer up all the money, buy out the arbitration years, say, Hey, we're going to overpay you these years. And, you know, for the players, sometimes the security is worth it. You know, some guys, again, look at Tim Lincecum. He never even made it to the contract. Sure. You have your Bryce Harpers, you have your Manny Machados, you have your Mookie Betts, you have your, you know, Mike Trout. Some guys do get to the money. Some guys don't. So, you know, Tatis never has to worry about that ever again. He never has to wonder about it ever again. He's now locked in. And for the Padres, I mean, talk about showing your commitment. They've been spending money all over the place. They've been improving the roster as much as possible. And now, 
I mean, you, you've just locked up a guy who puts butts in the seats for over a decade. I mean, this is a boon to their marketing. This is a boon to the, the team. It's a boon to the player. This is just a good decision. This is just the kind of decision that you should be making and good for the Padres for, you know, approaching him. And, you know, maybe in a pre pandemic world, they're not able to do this because, you know, maybe the lack of, you know, assurances about things is what made him more willing. Who knows? You know, I, I can't speak to that. The world is, today is not the world that it was a year ago. We know that. And so there's really no way to determine how that, you know, would or would not have affected it. But the simple fact of the matter is, this is a great contract. This is a great idea. And I look for more teams to start doing this. Um, and uh, Jared Kravis, who everyone knows, Red Sox blogger for Barstool Sports, he said uh, that Ronald Acuna Jr. should file his, fire his agent immediately, and he should. But the problem is firing your agent doesn't save the fact that you took a really horrible deal. Um, there have been a lot of kind of below-market deals that some teams have been managed to finagle. So <laughs> Fernando Tatis, is his agent, whoever that is, is going to be uh, – Rolling in new clients here very shortly. I think uh, I think everyone's sure about that. But great deal for the Padres. Great deal for Tatis. And this is going to be a really fun season for them. I think they're going to be a contender. It's going to be fun to watch. I'm not a huge baseball person in terms of analysis. Uh, I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking baseball. But in terms of contracts, I love contracts. And this is a great one. I probably should have organized this podcast a little better because one other thing I wanted to talk about for a minute was the fact that the state of Arizona is finally, 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 finally about to legalize sports gambling. And it looks like we'll be able to play fantasy sports. There are going to be sports books in the casinos that we have here that are on the reservations. Online gambling will finally be completely legal here and it won't be a questionable thing. It's going to be great. And of course, Arizona is late doing this because we're behind the ball and behind the curve and literally everything. It's a racist, backwards, stupid state government. The people here, there are plenty of great people here. There's a lot of about Arizona that's great. There's a lot of awesome culture here. There is a lot about Arizona that is very good. There is a lot about the Arizona government, and there is a lot about Arizona small towns that is really terrible. Those things are very true, and I'm not going to sit here and argue that. There's a lot about Arizona that sucks, but as much as there is about Arizona that sucks, there are also a lot of things that are really cool. And so it's finally great to see our dumbass state government at least modernizing a little bit and finally allowing something that I've been begging for and waiting for forever. Of course, I personally am on the brink of wanting to move the hell out of this state because I don't want to spend the rest of my life in Arizona. So, of course, it comes now. But if I do move, it certainly is not coming right now. Certainly not in the middle of a pandemic and certainly not right after a pandemic ends when we don't know how the world will adjust. So I'll still be here a little longer. And I appreciate the fact that, again, this dumbass state is actually doing one thing well. I don't think I'll be going to any sports books anytime soon as much as I would love to. Um, I'm still basically afraid to go anywhere in public that isn't like, you know, a food run or a weed run or anything that isn't like, you know, completely essential. And yeah, weed runs are definitely fucking essential. Don't get it twisted. Weed runs are very goddamn essential. So I don't think that, um, I don't think I'll be hitting any sports books, but I'm excited to play FanDuel again. Like I barely ever get to play FanDuel. When I do play, I suck because I'm out of state and I haven't played in forever and I'm rusty and I always do something wrong. And so every time I play FanDuel or DraftKings lately, I suck. And I'm finally going to be able to play on the regular again. I love it. I'm excited. I'm thrilled. And I just want them to pass it, put everything through. It looks like it's going to. 
Every state could use additional revenue right now. You know, Arizona just legalized marijuana. Now we're going to legalize gambling. And the simple fact of the matter is that we have the ability to be, you know, I mean, not a mini Las Vegas or anything, but there's several casinos around the valley. There's a lot of bars. There's a lot to do here. And now that you're adding marijuana and gambling, it's good for the state. There's going to be a lot of tax revenue. Arizona is going to be the place you can travel to now when you don't have the money to go to Vegas or Los Angeles, but you want to drink in cool bars and you want to gamble in casinos and you want to be in warm weather in the winter. Well, Arizona is going to be the place you can go now. So it's a smart thing for them to do. I'm glad they're doing it. And I'm also happy that they're legalizing basically everything. Again, you know, FanDuel, online sports gambling, there will be sports books. And, you know, I think, you know, truthfully, I, I, the casinos knew this was coming because I've been in a few casinos here recently where you can see that they have areas blocked off near the front of the casino, near a bar, right off the floor. And you can kind of see there's walls of televisions and you're like, man, this is exactly where a sports book would go. And you can see that they have places that are just ready made for sports books and they were just waiting for the laws to pass. And now they will. I mean, obviously there's no guarantee, but our dumbass governor basically tells the dumbass Republican state senators and whatnot what to do. And they just basically do what they're told generally. And for whatever reason, they've done a flip when before they were like, oh, gambling, we don't know. Oh, oh we have to study the viability. Oh, oh we got to make sure. Oh, 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 we got to make sure. Oh, I fucking hate Doug Ducey. Anyway, um, now they've done a 180 and it seems we will get our um, our gambling. And I'm, I'm very excited about that. I'm excited to... Uh, kick Eberly's ass in some fantasy basketball because uh, last time I entered his leagues, he whooped my ass because I was, again, rusty and hadn't played in forever. And I was like, I want to play. I'm in another state for a day. Let me play. So he set up a league and I just gave, I donated my money to the league. What are you going to do? Speaking of things that piss me off about Arizona, one last uh, little rant thing before I go into a couple games that I watched that were interesting. Um, I really fucking hate Ryan McDonough and John Hollinger. And these are two people who have contributed little. But through the little that they have contributed, somehow believe that they can say anything they want to. And I don't even think that they like each other, really. Um, maybe they do. I don't know. But I really fucking hate both of them. And I want to talk about why I hate both of them. It's really obvious why I hate Ryan McDonough, obviously. He fucking did everything wrong while he was GM of the Suns. He blew multiple picks. He didn't build an infrastructure to help players grow, uh, you know, either mentally, emotionally, or as players. He had no player development at all. He cycled through tons of coaches. He could never find a point guard. He publicly talked shit about players. He was an awful fucking general manager. You know, Ryan McDonough was very well respected uh, around the league from his time with the Celtics. He was someone who it was constantly touted, you know, how many good picks he had made for Boston. And so many people loved him. And he was a well-respected mind. And after he got fired in Phoenix, he got hired nowhere. And he is on Sirius XM radio. What up, Sirius? Hire me. Fire McDonough and hire me. Uh, but the point is, is that no one else in the league hired that dude. Like no one even wanted to consider hiring him because the job that he did in Phoenix was so fucking horrendous that he hasn't even been mentioned. 
And I also think he's probably the kind of douchebag who's not willing to take like less than a president of basketball operations job because he thinks he's so good or whatever. Everything he did in Phoenix sucked, but he did draft Devin Booker. So he's one of these guys who thinks that the fact that he drafted Devin Booker means that he's responsible for the Suns' current success, even though that he did fucking nothing else correctly. He did nothing else right. All of his other picks were complete wastes. All of his free agent signings were terrible. He was good at trades. He typically won trades in terms of winning the actual trade, but he had no concept of actually building a team. He was an awful general manager. And now he just sits on the radio and he takes his little pot shots at the Suns and talks shit. Fuck him, man. He's a fucking, he's garbage. He sucks. He's no one. And there's a reason no one in the league had any interest in hiring him. And there's a reason that I guarantee you, if you went to NBA Twitter right now and asked 27 NBA writers whether they respected my opinion or Ryan McDonough's more, the answer would be neither. No one would say they had any respect, but that should tell you he has the respect of me, a nothing podcaster. No one fucking cares about this guy. And I don't care what he says about Robert Sarver. Robert Sarver sucks. We all know I hate Robert Sarver. But the things he loves to say about the team or the employees or the players, just fuck him, man. I'm just so sick of watching, uh, listening to him. And, you know, everyone else in Phoenix feels the same way. So, you know, I, I don't know where he lives now, but I bet it's not here because none of us fucking want him around. And then Hollinger, you know, I've had enough of Hollinger. I've had enough of Hollinger for a very long time. We all know Hollinger created PER, which is a fine stat. It's decent for, you know, determining a player's offensive efficiency rating or whatever, but it completely ignores defense. And, you know, that in and of itself makes it a completely flawed statistic and only a, you know, it's about as worthwhile as, you know, raw stats, points per game, assists, rebounds. PER barely has any value, but it's still somehow celebrated as this incredible metric. And he still somehow gets celebrated because of it. He worked for the Grizzlies for several years as an executive and did like fucking nothing except like fight with the coach and show up the practices in ways that he shouldn't be. He was a fucking no one who thought he was a big time dude just because he was hired from ESPN or some shit. Like he's a fucking loser. And then, of course, he was a participant in the three way deal with the whole Suns Kelly Oubre thing, you know, the whole Dylan Brooks, Marshawn Brooks thing. And here's the other reason I hate John Hollander. Number one, that whole three way book, the three way trade, you know, where the Suns thought that they were receiving Dylan Brooks and the Grizzlies thought that they were sending out Marshawn Brooks. The trade made no fucking sense if the Suns weren't getting Dylan Brooks because they were trading Trevor Ariza, who still had some value as a role player at that time. And the Grizzlies were getting Kelly Oubre, who was a young asset at that time. And the Suns were getting like three nothing players in Wayne Selden, Marshawn Brooks, and they would have gotten uh, Austin Rivers as well. And it's like, not that Austin Rivers is a nothing player, but Rivers was never going to play for the team. They did end up acquiring him in a straight up deal with Washington and cut him. Like when I say nothing, Rivers had no value to the team. He never intended to show up. They never intended to have him on the team. So somehow the Suns were just supposed to facilitate 
the Grizzlies getting better and Washington getting better and they were going to take on three garbage players. There's no way that trade ever would have made sense. And every time Hollinger has retold this, this story on every podcast, he blames the Suns and so oh, their front office, they didn't know. We told Washington this and somehow they bungled it. There's no fucking way that the Suns would have ever agreed to a deal where they were taking on three garbage players and the Grizzlies in Washington both got better. That makes no fucking sense. Even the dumbass sons of of all the years never would have done that. And by the way, this was the smarter sons front office. This is the James Jones James Jones front office by this time. There's no way that they would have taken that. And that's why the sons repeatedly said Dylan Brooks. There's no way they were very clear Dylan Brooks. So if anyone screwed up, it was fucking Washington or it was Memphis not doing their due diligence to make sure that they were talking everything out because these two teams thought that they were just fleecing the Suns for no reason and they weren't even paying attention to what went on. Well, lo and behold, the Suns got Oubre and it, you know, worked out for them because they managed to use Oubre as part of the piece to flip for Chris Paul. So it worked out for the Suns, you know, whatever. Uh, Dylan Brooks is fine. You know, I think he, he starts pretty regularly for Memphis right now. So good for them. You know, he's an okay player. I would have been fine acquiring Dylan Brooks instead of Kelly Oubre. You know, those things are all fine. The point is that every time Hollinger tells that story, he tells a bullshit version where his team has no responsibility and they were so perfect. And it's so funny how stupid the Suns are. Man, fuck him. I fucking hate that guy. And by the way, he did nothing in Memphis. And if he ever fucking tries to sit there and take credit for John Morant, I'm going to claw my fucking eyes out because he had nothing to do with any of those things. And I just, for whatever reason, he gets to go on all these shows and, oh, you're so wonderful. You blah, blah, blah. He created one stat years ago that is now the least efficient advanced metric that we have. And he is responsible for nothing. And he and Ryan McDonough are just the worst kind of failing upwards, useless white guys who do nothing right and somehow continue to get jobs out of it. And I fucking hate both of them. (sighs) I had to get that one off my chest. I really fucking hate those guys. One update real quick. Um, it does look like the Wentz conditions on the pick could actually turn the second rounder into a first rounder. So there you go. Um, the Eagles potentially get their first rounder, assuming that, you know, Wentz plays well or plays a lot or whatever those conditions are. And the Colts, if things don't go too well, only give up a second and third round pick for a guy who still has potential upside. And it's not like they paid anywhere near what the Rams paid for Matt Stafford or anything like that. So, um, and obviously they're not getting a quarterback of, you know, equal value, but you know, long-term Wentz still has some upside. So good trade for them. But I did see that and just wanted to throw that in there that it is possible, not because it necessarily matters that I mention it, but because I will go insane if I know that I knew that information and didn't actually mention it again, I'm a little bit crazy. Speaking of a little bit crazy, as I scroll through my notes here, I see at the bottom I have what looks like a uh, Kevin Spacey and Seven style notebook full of notes about a couple of games I watched. Um, I guess I shouldn't reference Kevin Spacey and Seven anymore because Kevin Spacey's a terrible person. But I don't know of any other. I, I don't know of any other movie that features like a million notebooks. We'll just talk about Morgan Freeman finding the room full of notebooks and Seven, and reading them. Those sorts of things. In any case, watched a couple of interesting games. The Nuggets and Wizards game. I mean, what an interesting track meet. And 
you know, it's the second game back to back for the Nuggets, so you know that, you know, they're going to struggle to play, you know, at an intense level. But you also know that they lost the previous night to Boston. You're playing one of the worst teams in the league in the Wizards. So, um, you know, the Nuggets certainly want to win that game, especially given, you know, right now the Nuggets are on the outside looking in when it comes to home court advantage in the playoffs. And, you know, we know how much the Nuggets love their home court advantage with the altitude. So that is something that they're certainly striving for. So even if you're on the second night of a back-to-back, you want to play the Wizards at your best. And, you know, they just didn't. And, you know, the Wizards ended up winning this game. But the thing, there were a few things that kind of, that stuck out to me. Um, and I mean, obviously, I mean, the Nuggets played bad defense. Obviously, the Wizards played bad defense too, but the Nuggets defense was bad. Again, it's the second game of a back to back. You have to travel in between only from DC to Boston, but that it's still travel. You know, I, I understand all of those things, but, you know, you're still playing one of the worst teams in the league and you should still have enough of a structure that, you know, you can handle that situation. I mean, it's not like you're the only team that's ever played the second night of back-to-back. You know what I mean? It's not like that's something that's new to you. And it's a convenient excuse, but teams win on the second night of back-to-back all the time. And especially when they lost against Boston the night before. Again, you're playing a bad team. There's a sense of urgency you need to have that the Nuggets just really didn't have on defense. And again, maybe it's going to be difficult for Jokic to you know, bring it every single second. And maybe it's going to be difficult for Murray to bring it every single second when they carry so much of the load. But, you know, that means other guys need to step up. And I will say Michael Porter Jr., um, for as bad as he is on defense, he didn't really have a horrible defensive game. He didn't have a good defensive game by any stretch of the imagination, but he was kind of all over the place. He's young. He's got the energy. He was, you know, he was closing out. He was closing out because he was out of position on some of his rotations, but he still was he was still playing hard on defense, even if he was inefficient and wasn't necessarily playing well. He was giving the necessary energy, the necessary effort, and that's kind of what you need to see. But the thing that stuck out to me the most is like Michael Porter Jr., you know, and I haven't watched every Nuggets game, so I'd have to go back and watch some of the footage. But, like, in this game at least, and in all the games I can remember, like, there's no, you know, Michael Porter Jr. and Jokic two-man game. Like, at all. And there should be. Like, that would be awesome. And in this game, there's none. You know, Michael Porter Jr., truth be told, he was playing harder on defense than he was on offense. On offense, for the most part, he's either standing in the dunker spot or he's standing in the corner. And, you know, there were a few times when he made a few nice hard cuts to the basket and got a few, you know, looks here and there, and he runs in transition. But, like, it almost reminds me of, you know, like, Kawhi Leonard, like, when he was with the Raptors. Like, Zach Lowe used to always talk about how the Raptors had their offense and then the Kawhi Leonard offense and how, you know, Kawhi kind of would do his own thing. And, you know, Michael Porter Jr., it's like he's either standing in the corner or he wants to go ISO. And it's not to say that he's anything near Kawhi Leonard. I'm not trying to say that, but it's like he just does his thing. He's either going to go ISO and try to score on someone. And, you know, he's very good. He can score on people. Or, he you know, again, he stands in the dunker spot. He stands in the corner. And, you know, maybe that's just what they want him to do, what they ask him to do. But he's not part of the offense because part of what makes the Nuggets so good is the two-man game with Murray and Jokic and just their ability to completely switch up the pick and roll and use it in just absolutely devastating ways pick and pop pick and roll you know just there's so many different you know give and go they can do a million things together and I'm just sitting here 
why the hell isn't Michael Porter Jr. involved in any of these actions? And I know that, you know, he's complained about some of his usage or whatever, and maybe it's just he doesn't know how to set a screen. I don't know. But just truthfully, like, I'm sitting here and I'm like, dude, how is a Jokic, Michael Porter Jr. pick and roll not in, like, like, I, I, like I'm running that all the fucking time. Like, are you kidding me? Like, both of those dudes can handle. Both of them are big. Like, it's awesome. You can switch into a Jamal Murray, MPJ pick and roll. Like, he's just standing in the dunker spot or standing in the corner. And I know that you can't have everyone around the, you know, the the top of the key. And I know that Jokic is the hub of everything. But it just, how is that not in the toolkit? <laughs> like, how is that not in the box when things aren't working? Yeah, just, I didn't see it one fucking time. Maybe... It was run and I missed it. And, you know, I I watched, I don't know if I, I never saw it and I've never seen it. And I'm not saying that it's never done. Maybe there is a Nuggets expert who could tell me, no, no, you're missing it because they just ran it in these games. But I just didn't understand how I don't see that at all. And I think there are huge chemistry issues with the Nuggets. I think that, I don't know that it necessarily extends to Murray and Jokic. I think those two really like each other. Um, but I talked about this before with the whole, you know, should we trade MPJ for Beal or should we trade Murray for Beal or, you know, what's the move? You know, the simple fact of the matter is that it doesn't seem like the Nuggets like playing together, maybe. Um, I know that, again, Jokic and Murray love each other, but we know that Michael Porter Jr. wants to be more of the offense. And I'm kind of watching this game and I'm kind of like, man, I kind of agree. I mean, as good as Jokic is, he can't literally do everything. Other people have to participate. Like, we can't sit here and be like, well, Jokic should touch the ball every single time and then criticize the Rockets when they had James Harden do that. Like, I just, there should be more diversity to the offense. And for all of the, well, they're small because, you know, their backup guards are Compazzo and Morris and, you know, they have a small backcourt and blah, blah, blah. Well, you have this fucking huge, monstrous pick and roll combo. And it's also, I mean, by the way, involving Michael Porter Jr. more in the offense will make him try harder on defense. It's just natural. When you touch the ball more on offense and you score more, you don't want to get scored on on the other end. It's just one of those things. Like, I'm not saying he's ever going to be a plus defender, but if he's pouring in 30, you know, then and he's doing okay on defense, then, you know, there you go. And I just, I'm not, I'm not, I, I hate Michael Porter Jr.'s political views. I'm not necessarily the biggest believer in him long term, but... When I hear him complain that he's not a part of the offense and then I'm sitting here watching and I'm seeing that he's basically, at least in this game, being just used, again, the occasional cut in the dunker spot shooting. He's good at those things and that's good. He should do them. I'm not saying he should never do them, but how is he never setting a screen for a pick and roll? How is he never switching and handling with Jokic in a pick and roll? He can handle a little bit, like get, do a little bit of everything, like give him an opportunity. Like, I, I don't know. I just, it felt weird to me and... I just think that's something that needs to 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 come out of the bag. I think they need to look into that. Um, and so I just – I do wonder what the chemistry is um, in, in the Nuggets locker room. Just honestly, like I do wonder about that. I mean, in this game though, how about Davis Bertans though? I mean, he just – he hit like nine or ten threes. I think he set his personal record. I mean, he was just absolutely balling. He was hitting shots from all over the place. And the Nuggets defense was so bad, they fouled twice at the end of the game to lose. I mean, Beal hits, um, no, Bertans gets fouled at the end of the game. 
makes his free throws. Jamal Murray ties it with a triple. And then they foul Beal again. And, you know, I know that the, you know, ticky-tack fouls at the end of the game can be, you know, I know. But it just, they, oh, man, the Nuggets blew this game. They had it. They were so close. They kept getting back in it. And they just couldn't get a stop when it mattered. And, you know, the offense wasn't quite diverse enough. And there you go, you know. You lose, and it's a tough game to lose because the Wizards are, you know, the worst team in the league right now, and yeah, I don't know. But I just think that as good as Mike Malone has been, as good as the Nuggets have been, I really think, you know, if Michael Malone, or excuse me, if Michael Porter Jr. is truly untouchable, if the if the team really believes that, I'm not saying Michael Malone believes that, but if the team believes that Michael Porter Jr. is untouchable because they think that he is part of the future, then they need to tell Michael Malone, hey, let's diversify this offense more because he can do more than he is and they can use him in more ways than they are. And yeah, yeah, that's what I think. It'll just be interesting to see how that goes. And if that's, again, if it becomes more of, you know, no, we just value his shooting so much. We just want him shooting. Fine. I just I think he can do more than that, and I think he can open up more for the offense. And I think the more tools you have in the bag on offense, that you know helps you when things get fucked up and aren't working, so that you prevent you know transition uh, opportunities for the other team. Every miss in a playoff game is a rare transition opportunity, right? So the fewer of those that you can create by being even more proficient in the half-court half offense by having, you know, additional elite talent in your elite little two-man game system. I just don't see how it's a bad thing. So we'll see if that occurs. And then last thing. I really want to re-up this idea I mentioned in the last episode. I know I just talked about this, but I just want to talk about it again. I really love the idea of John Collins going to the Thunder. Because here's the thing. I really like Darius Baisley. I really think he's an interesting player. And I really just honestly think SGA, Dort, Baisley, Collins, I just, I really love that. I, I love that a lot. I think it would be really cool. Um, you know, I know in the deal I proposed, Horford goes. So, uh, you know, they got to figure out the center position or whatever. But, you know, you can figure that out. And again, I know that Collins isn't perfect and everything, but I just, man, like, I just think it would be cool. You're not necessarily accelerating the rebuild because Collins still has a lot of growing to do too, but you're getting another player. Like, isn't the whole thing the Thunder are doing right now is taking flyers on players? And I just think, like, again, SGA Dort, Baisley, Collins, you figure it out at center, you know, whatever, you know, you want to do. Like, I just, I don't know. I think that's really interesting. And it's something that I would pursue. And I know that they won't. I know it's not going to happen, but I still think it's cool. You know, you just go all young, you start Isaiah Roby at center, you're fine. And, you know, the whole thing about paying John Collins, I mean, there's a salary floor in the NBA. You do have to pay someone. So he's a guy that the Thunder could pay, you know, especially if they were, you know, sending Horford out in the deal that I proposed. It was like Horford and Muscala plus a pick for Collins, Snell, and Rondo. And then again, you like wave Rondo or whatever. Um, I know it would happen. I just think it's a, a cool deal um, that... You know, again, it doesn't hurt the Thunder really at all. And if you believe that John Collins is not a good defender right now and you want to lose games anyway, then 
You know, you get a free look at a player who helps you lose. I don't know. And if you can rehab his value, then you don't want to keep him long term necessarily. Then it's just another asset for the Thunder. So I don't know. I mean, I think there are a lot of possibilities there. But given that it seems extremely unlikely, the one other thing I wanted to talk about, a trade scenario I find interesting, even if it doesn't necessarily make complete sense. Now, Bill Simmons floated the idea to uh, Kevin O'Connor on his podcast. And I know how bad Bill Simmons has gotten. I'm not like a Bill Simmons guy. I liked him when I was younger, but I understand he's gotten terrible at this point. But every now and then he has an interesting thought. And he was saying, and this is not an interesting thought. The first thing he was saying is he was wondering, would the Thunder trade SGA just to completely bottom out? And obviously, no, that's a stupid idea. He's a foundational piece that they are trying to build around. So obviously they're not trading SGA. That's a stupid comment, obviously. But what about Lou Dort? That kind of came up, and the, you know, I think Kevin O'Connor kind of brushed that one off too. But here's what I was thinking: We all love Lou Dort right now. He's an awesome defender. He brings the energy. He's shooting the ball very well. Um, he's not necessarily a long-term, for sure, core foundational piece for the Thunder. Like it's easy to kind of bring this energy right now. It's easy to shoot the ball well when there's no expectations of the team and no one's giving you their best shot. Like Lou Dort is a nice player. Um, he's a quality player, but it doesn't necessarily mean he is for sure like the starting two guard of the Thunder for, you know, the whole time next to SGA. Maybe they view him that way. I don't know. But here's the thing. The Thunder got him to sign a four-year deal. And for the next couple years, um, it's, I think it's this year and two more years beyond this one, he's on one of the best deals in the NBA because it's one of the cheapest contracts in the NBA and he is providing plus, plus, plus value. And so here's the thing. If the Thunder do not view him as a core foundational piece, and again, maybe they do, maybe I'm wrong, but if they think, hey, he's playing really well right now, it's really unlikely to continue, but right now his value is through the fucking roof, why not trade him? Like, again, I'm not saying that they should trade him. What I'm saying is if you're the Thunder and you don't think Lou Dort is a long-term piece for you. Well, right now on this ultra-cheap contract, he is actually a super good piece for a contender. Like, think about all the teams that could use, you know, uh, just an in-your-face defender who can also shoot the three. This dude could fit on every team simply because he just plugs into the two-guard spot. You know, just you plug him right in. He hounds the guy he's guarding. He's not perfect on defense, but, like, he kind of just fits in. He's the rare, really young player who can actually fit into a really good team and help. And he actually really could. And he's on this ultra cheap contract, so anyone could acquire him. And I was just thinking, like, this deal actually could make sense. The idea of trading SGA is dumb. SGA is going to have, you know, another 15 years of, you know, premium point guard play. You don't get rid of that. That guy is going to be around for the future of the Thunder. But Lou Dort... You know, who knows? Maybe he's Tony Allen or maybe right now he's just a plus defender who's shooting decently on a solid contract. And maybe when he gets overpaid, suddenly the value isn't there because he will get overpaid in a few years. You know how these things go. So I just I think it's interesting. And I think that that's one thing that could happen. Like, just for example, I'm not going to sit here and and go through trade ideas because his contract is like just above a million dollars. You could come up with any number of trade scenarios. I'm not going to sit here and go through them. But just by way of example, the one I think that's really interesting is like, what about Boston? I know that he's not like a point guard, really. But just think about having Lou Dort and Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and then say 
say they did the uh, Al Horford trade instead of the Thunder acquiring Collins. Like, let's say that the Celtics took back Al Horford because I actually saw, I was thinking about this and I was actually Googling Al Horford just to see what his health was because I wasn't sure. Um, and I actually saw Chris Mannix mentioned as well. Al Horford back to the Celtics would be a good idea. And I'm just thinking if you added Lou Dort and Horford back to the Celtics, you basically put them into the trade exception and you send the Thunder, you know, the Celtics still have picks, a bunch of picks from different teams. You send them a few picks. Um, you send them a couple of young guys. You know, they still have some some assets available. Um, and, you, you know, you send them picks and young guys and, you know, just more lottery, you know, tickets. And you take back Horford so they don't have to deal with that bulky salary. Uh, and you get Dort. Like, I just think that would be really interesting. And again, just think about that lineup of, like, Smart, Dort, Brown, Tatum, and Horford. <laughs> like, it'd be a nightmare to score on. And I know that it would be, it would struggle offensively. But then, you know, when you rotate Kemba in and out, you're, you know, you have a better offense. And, you know, if you have Smart, Kemba, and Dort in your backcourt, then, I mean, suddenly you've got at least one really good defender on the court at all times. Um, and I know that it, you know, keeps some of the ball handling burden on Tatum and Brown, but that's going on right now anyway. It's better to have Dort out there than, you know, the shell of, of Jeff T. And, you know, it's just an interesting thought. Again, I don't, I don't think it'll happen. I think the Thunder like him. I don't think they necessarily intend to trade him. But I do just think that it is one of those rare situations where, you actually could improve yourself by acquiring this really young player. You could improve your chances at winning a championship. He's on a super cheap contract and someone might actually pony up because the Thunder might actually be willing to part with him because he's not necessarily, he's like a really good like third guard. He's like an awesome third guard on a championship team. I don't know if he's a starter. Maybe the Thunder disagree. Maybe they think he will be. I just think it's an interesting thought and it's something that could happen and we'll see. And that is the Blunt Doctor Show, yet again. Within 24 hours, very exciting for me. Like, rate, subscribe, review, tell your friends, come on the show, talk to me, yell at me, tell me I suck, whatever it is. Just be sure to check out bloodoctor.com and be sure to have a badass day. <laughs>